This is Sound and Vision, and here's a new four-part miniseries KXP's Isabel Khalili is launching called Palestine Amplified. It's about the role of music in the Palestinian struggle for freedom. We are now really understanding that our struggles are intersectional and that we are all in just one singular fight, not a multitude of fights. Something I've learned from the ongoing Palestinian struggle for freedom is the importance of connecting all struggles against oppressive systems. Because it's our isolation and our individualism that help fuel these systems. At KEXP, we often talk about how music has the power to transcend borders and how it can remind us that we are not alone. I also think music can provide a space for truth and open us up to the humanity of others. So as we witness the death and devastation in the news these past few months, let's use this space to celebrate the life, knowledge, and resilience of the Palestinian people. My name is Isabel Khalili, and this is Palestine Amplified. Over the past couple months, I've spoken with a dozen artists and activists. Throughout the four episodes of this series, you'll hear voices from a variety of backgrounds all coming together to amplify the Palestinian struggle through the lens of music. In this first episode, we're looking at how different struggles are related, from apartheid South Africa to police brutality in the U.S., and how making these connections can help us better understand the Palestinian cause. Music also plays a key role. It allows us into the personal stories. So we're going to start with Palestinian musician Huda Asfour. My life has been such a way where borders, specifically political borders, have been very painful. They meant, uh, you know, being separated from family, not being able to have family unions. The sense of home gets disrupted. Just to give people some reference, I was born in Lebanon. My parents moved shortly after that to Syria. I grew up in Tunis for most of my childhood. We left after that to Gaza, where I got to meet my family for the first time at the age of 14. My family from my father's side. Uh, my mom's family is scattered all over the world. So meeting them meant that we had to get visas, which with a Palestinian document was really a feat of, you know, of luck. So borders are this uh, obstacle that you have to overcome all the time. And in that sense, I think even my first album was sort of a quest to live, to imagine a, a world without those borders, a world where these borders, you know, become less defining of who we are, where we could, you know, I can imagine moving freely. I am a huge supporter in general of the Palestinian cause and in general of all anti-colonial causes. That's Sudanese musician Asara. She contributed her song Men'ana to a mixtape series called Rise Up BDS Mixtape Volume 2. The goal is to amplify global solidarity with Palestinians with the acknowledgement that none of us is free until all of us are free. 
track Menana was written around the Sudanese revolution in 2019, actually, right around the dispersion of it, which is really a reflection of the outside forces really interfering with Sudan's movements towards autonomous uh, self-determination. And so this track is called Menana, Who Am I? And it asks in the opening lines, it's like, who am I if I stopped loving you and if I stopped waiting for you? Who am I if my feet do not uh, stomp the dirt on the path to your freedom? So for me, it, this track really symbolizes what I hope a lot of us in the global south feel in this collective struggle. And Palestine, for a lot of people in my generation, is really a symbol of that struggle. Sunny Singh also contributed his music and co-produced the mixtape in solidarity with Palestinians. His music is influenced by the wisdom and traditions of his Sikh heritage. Sunny's understanding of the Palestinian struggle is rooted in intersectionality. When I started learning more about this so-called conflict in, in the Middle East, the dynamics of power seemed so clear. Just when you start to do a little bit of research, right, or hear few Palestinian voices, right, like the work of Edward Said, really, uh, I, I learned so much from him. I learned so much from reading Noam Chomsky. Uh, but really, June Jordan, um, you know, black feminist poet and essayist, was one of my pathways into Palestine solidarity work. And she was really ahead of the curve in the feminist movement and sort of racial justice spaces in the, in the United States, like all the way back in the 80s really putting Palestine solidarity at the forefront. And one of the things that she said that that always hit me is like one of the litmus tests of humanity. A litmus test for morality as far as I'm concerned. One is what you're prepared to do on behalf of the Palestinian people. And the other is what are you prepared to do on behalf of gay and lesbian peoples? There's a deeply moral and ethical question that horrifies me uh, in, in this issue, which is... Uh, what does it take for a people that have been historically oppressed and have suffered so much to inflict such suffering on others? My conversation with Wendy Elisheva Summerson shed light on this difficult question and the project of Israel. Wendy is a co-founder of the Seattle chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. I think the only way to make sense of it in some ways is that it's a trauma project. Like it grew out of the trauma of um, you know, hundreds of years of anti-Semitism and the Nazi Holocaust. And the Israeli state is really good at activating our traumatic responses and making us feel like we, you know, are in danger right now. And then our fear and anger gets, is supposed to be that they manipulate it into getting displaced. Palestinians who were adult responsible, as we know, for the Nazi Holocaust, right? European Christians were. is a form of brainwashing. And it is the reason that it works is because the Jewish people have our own history of attempted genocide against us. And so we have that in our bodies. We hear that in the stories. Um, I'm a descendant of survivors of the Nazi Holocaust. And so 
you know, there, there's a, for me, what that means is that I feel particularly devastated in this moment that these people who claim to represent me are enacting another attempted genocide. Sunny views the crisis in Palestine as a cautionary tale of what happens when a people puts religion or ethnicity at the center of government. Many in my community and the Sikh community believe that we'll never have true freedom and sovereignty in the state of India. And I believe that in many ways. I think that's true. I think it's probably a fact. As British colonial rule over the Indian subcontinent came to an end in 1947, colonial leadership attempted to divide the region into nation-states on the basis of religious identity. Pakistan was designated for Muslims, and although India was technically a secular state, Indian leaders began to organize their national identity around Hinduism. This has led to the oppression of minority religious groups such as Sikhs and Muslims. And yet, uh, fighting for a Sikh state, nation-state, really gives me pause, right? That's not something I'm ready to jump behind because where in human history have we seen a successful example of a, an equitable ethno or religious nation state, right? Um, and Israel is certainly a contemporary example that should give us all pause. What I'm particularly interested in is, you know, healing is really about breaking the cycles of abuse, right? So we know that it, like on an individual level, people who have been harmed often cause harm. And the cycle of harm and violence and trauma continues. And healing means that we intervene in that cycle and break it so that we don't have to keep repeating the same kind of harm. And so, you know, the, the state of Israel really relies on evoking our um, fear response and making us feel angry and afraid and tells us that the only way that we can be safe is through a nation state. But there have always been Jews who don't believe our safety is going to come from militarized borders, right? From violence, from a gun pointed at somebody else. It is also really important to understand that systems of power work together. This is Ijoma Oluo. She's a Seattle-based writer and speaker on issues of race and identity in America. You may be familiar with her work. She wrote the best-selling book, So You Want to Talk About Race. And so for me, as someone who works primarily toward ending anti-Black racism in the United States, systemic racism in the United States, the moment you start doing a little research into, you know, contemporary issues with the heavy militarization of police in the United States, you're going to see direct connection to what is happening to Palestinian people, what is being done by the state of Israel. And so that looks like things like direct training, where police officers are going to Israel to receive training on militarization and different tactics um, in order to control and honestly terrorize Black communities in America. Thousands of U.S. police officers, sheriffs, and Border Patrol agents have trained with the Israeli military and police forces since the early 2000s. This sharing of tactics and technologies has been dubbed the Deadly Exchange by Jewish Voice for Peace. The exchange has reinforced surveillance, racial profiling, and the suppression of public protests through the use of force here in the U.S. So we see this, and then, we, of course, we also see the economic 
and sociopolitical cooperation of two settler colonial states, the United States and Israel. People who've always imagined themselves, you know, watching movies on slavery, that they would have been on the side freeing the slaves. And these are one of those historical moments right now where you could be taking a risk. And often it's not even a huge risk. And watching people just fail that challenge is disheartening. And mostly what I try to do is encourage people. You know, I really want people to understand this too. It's not just risk. If you are afraid to speak out, you are isolating yourself. And you're isolating yourself from people of conscience, from people who may have the same heart as you and are just a little more brave. And that is waiting for you. It is not just what you will lose. It's what you have to gain. That sense of community is immediate when you show up to a protest. We are blocking the main entrance to the iconic Space Needle in Seattle today. Jewish Voice for Peace has made the news in recent months for its massive protests and sit-ins in solidarity with Palestine. They've demonstrated at landmarks like Grand Central Station, the Statue of Liberty, and the Space Needle here in Seattle. Hundreds rally near the Space Needle, calling for an immediate ceasefire in the war in Gaza. You know, it's really important. It was really important for us to have an indigenous presence at the protests because Palestinians are indigenous to Palestine. Even when I was talking on the phone to one of the Kosalish folks, he was saying to me, like, both of our people, he was talking about the Jewish people and indigenous people, that both of our peoples have experienced attempted genocide. And at that last protest, it was just the most moving thing to me was the solidarity with Palestine and the ways that we can see that our struggles are connected. To further explore the Palestinian struggle through the lens of indigeneity, I talked with Tori and Kevin. They're the DJs who host KEXP's indigenous music show, Sounds of Survivance. My name is Kevin Sir. I'm a Kanaka Maoli, Native Hawaiian. I'm Tori Johnston. I'm Quinault from Tahola on the mouth of the Quinault River. Tori is also a PhD candidate in Native American Studies at UC Davis. I've been thinking a lot lately about the kind of framework of indigeneity and how it doesn't exist without a settler colonial and colonized relationship. And just thinking about like the profoundly unequal right to life that happens when the colonized subject is subject to, you know, oppressive forces of settler colonialism. And so I think that with the occupation, the Israeli occupation in Gaza, you're seeing a lot of the same logics of settler colonialism. And one of the most kind of profound and simple things that I saw was a social media post by uh, Megan Bang, who's an Anishinaabe scholar. She simply posted four maps and they were of the pre and post colonial project land possession and ownership of the United States, Australia, New Zealand, and Palestine. Each map shows how over time, the amount of land controlled by settlers overtakes the land inhabited and stewarded by natives. She didn't really have much to say besides the idea that collective indigenous liberation is something that this world profoundly needs. 
Some of the most powerful demonstrations of indigenous solidarity have been through music and dance. Pro-Palestinian protesters in New Zealand went viral with their performance of the traditional Hakka dance of the Maori people. They did this in solidarity with Gaza from across the world. Being a native Hawaiian and, and being of a people who have no place, the solidarity comes from not just witnessing the same destruction, the same racist tropes that are used to excuse that destruction and genocide, but also just really not wanting generations of people to feel the way that we do generations from now. And you see it happening in real time and, and the horrors and, and everything that are there are very apparent and triggering and are like just watching a rerun of a nightmare that you've been told about your whole life and that you grow to realize how it's impacted your life in such a way. For me, and I think for other other Indigenous people that just don't have a place, the pain of not having that and seeing that as a potential future reality for Palestinians um, is something that we have to act so that Two generations from now, they don't feel that. Kevin's understanding of the Palestinian struggle deepened during the time he spent studying apartheid South Africa. He focused on the role of music in the resistance movement. Music is just a form of communication that transcends language. So I think that's why music becomes so integral in, in every civil rights and every resistance movement. Um, because you put something in a song and people suddenly click and they get it, you know. There's like one person in specific that uh, his name is Visili Mini. He was a trade unionist, he was a composer, he was a choir leader, and he was an activist. And at the onset of apartheid, he somewhat saw what was going to happen to his people. And he saw a lot of the things that have been happening in Palestine that happened there. And he created a movement in which he preached to his people to use song as a means to communicate everything about the struggle. And he ended up composing a song. Translate to watch out Fairwood. And so Fairwood was the prime minister that basically the architect of the apartheid government. And uh, Miriam Makeba recorded the biggest hit of that song. But Visili Mini was eventually arrested and put in prison with two other of his activists. Uh, and Pretoria prison. And he became a martyr for his people. And um, there's stories that are written about his death and everything leading up to his hanging. And he was hung because he wouldn't give up information that would lead to the arrest of other freedom fighters. But in this last act of defiance, he kind of practiced what he preached in that, you know, they can do all these things to us. They cannot stop us from singing. 
And so the entire night, which was against the rules of the prison, him and his two other prisoners that were to be hung the next day, they sung. And they sung and they sung and they sung. And then eventually they fell asleep. But the moments they woke up, hours later, they started singing again. And these are the prison guards that hung him that kind of tell the story, as well as other activists and all the prisoners that were there that survived, that were able to carry this on. But they literally had him marching down the hallways to, you know, to the gallows. And he's still singing with his beautiful baritone voice in defiance. And he sang up to the moment that he was hung and he sung with joy, he sung with power. And he sung as a message to everyone in that prison, keep singing. They could do all this stuff to us. They cannot stop us from singing, keep singing. And so that became like the moment that it really became the tool and the weapon that South Africans used throughout the entire struggle against apartheid. Most of the struggle songs, no one knows who wrote them. And because a lot of the times they were just born out of people being in a room, singing their sorrows or singing their anger. But these songs would be exchanged and they would exist within a group of people that passed on. That person would go to another gathering and start singing. And then the people would change the words to that song as it evolved with the struggle. Some of the songs like the Toy Toy, which I know has come back up in modern day protest music, which was actually a song that was designed to scare the shit out of people. <laughs> and it was also designed to inspire people to march in unison and run forward towards a wall of tanks and guns so that if they were shot, their bodies would fall forward. You know, that kind of using music as a weapon when you don't have one to hold. If you look into the history of apartheid in South Africa, if you look at the music and the words, like change the people, translate the language, it's they're speaking to Palestine. Amnesty International spells out this is apartheid. In making these connections between struggles, we can also learn and adapt tools of resistance. An example of this is the Boycott Divestment Sanctions Movement, or BDS. In 2005, Palestinian civil society called upon the international community to comply with this nonviolent movement. The goal is to pressure Israel to comply with international law and universal principles of human rights. Here's Samir Eskanda a Palestinian musician and organizer based in the United Kingdom. The BDS movement is partly inspired by the struggle against apartheid in South Africa, but also by the boycotts during the US civil rights movement, including the Montgomery bus boycott, and many other justice movements around the world. It's also inspired by decades of popular nonviolent Palestinian resistance that has included boycotts stretching back decades. And BDS has brought together these many disparate calls for boycott tactics um, under a Palestinian leadership led by the BDS National Committee. Today, BDS is supported by many tens of thousands of artists around the world. As of this recording, more than 6,000 artists have already signed on to the Musicians for Palestine letter. 
It explicitly draws inspiration from the Artists Against Apartheid movement that helped end apartheid in South Africa. Signatories to Musicians for Palestine include Brian Eno, Bikini Kill, Kelly Uchis, Fontaine's DC, Denzel Curry, Sleater Kenny, Aruj Aftab, and many, many more. BDS, its sole focus is on institutional culpability in apartheid. Those Israeli cultural institutions that are complicit in apartheid, they can end that complicity. Um, they can end sponsorship, let's say, by the Israeli government, um, by the apartheid Tel Aviv municipality, for example. And they can endorse Palestinians' comprehensive rights under international law, including the right of Palestinian refugees to return. What the late Archbishop Desmond Tutu called our full menu of rights. To date, no major Israeli cultural institution has ever met those two basic conditions of ending complicity and endorsing Palestinians' full rights under international law. And until they do, they deserve to be boycotted. Sunny Singh, who we heard from earlier in the episode, helped produce the BDS mixtape with the group Amplify Palestine. He continues to use his platform to encourage other musicians to heed the call from Palestinian civil society and support the BDS movement. The ask is that we, academic and cultural workers, including musicians, refrain from participating in cultural events in Israel and boycotting events throughout the world that are sponsored by the Israeli government, Israeli lobby groups, and other complicit Israeli institutions. So it's not asking us to boycott. It's not about individuals. It's really an institutional strategy to recognize the power of culture. Seeing that the cultural boycott of the South African apartheid regime was a a really important way that the tides turned globally, um, public opinion turned globally, and and eventually uh, brought an end to apartheid. Despite its tactics of peaceful resistance and the focus on institutions and not individuals, the BDS movement has been vilified. In fact, 37 states in the U.S. have passed bills and executive orders specifically designed to discourage participation. Here's Salma Al-Aswad, a Palestinian-American organizer and researcher who works with the Palestinian Feminist Collective. The movement against BDS, which is so ludicrous, actually lays bare that we're fine with Palestinians as long as they nonviolently resist is completely false. We resist in any way and it's demonized, it's made illegal. Whether, you know, we, we try to break the blockade in Gaza by bringing a boat full of international humanitarians, they're gunned down. You know, the Great March of Return, which was organized by a Palestinian poet, where thousands of people marched peacefully with their families to the borders within Gaza, their missile down. So, you know, an economic boycott, a cultural boycott made illegal. And and in fact, people are, you know, threatened with their jobs if they sign on to anything calling for BDS. It is a reaching at all angles to balance of people and to continue to work towards their erasure. Essentially, that's what all of these things lead to. It is turning. I think that we, we see that reflected in the younger generations. It's easier for a person, I think now, to instead of swallowing the lie that anti-Zionism is anti-Semitism, for example, It's easier for a young person now to say, I am the descendants of 
those who fought in the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, and I connect my struggle with the Palestinian struggle. And I'm telling you this because I've heard it time and time again from young people, even amid all of the effort to both stop conversation and prevent solidarity, even amid all that, people are connecting. People are connecting the dots. People are seeing themselves in the other and the other in themselves. Salma's last point is crucial. Connecting our struggles helps us see ourselves in each other and builds a foundation of understanding that can't easily be broken. I believe this is the first step toward collective liberation. In our next episode, we'll hear more from Salma about the history of music as a tool of Palestinian resistance. Essentially, the music operated as code, passing messages, especially between prisoners and resistance fighters and their mothers and families when they didn't want the British and then later the Zionist occupiers to understand their messages or follow their news. Palestine Amplified, the miniseries, was written and produced by me, Isabel Khalili, with editing support from Roddy Nikpour, Dusty Henry, and Larry Mizell Jr. Audio was mixed by Roddy Nikpour, who also contributed original music. Many interviews have informed this series, and I want to thank everyone for sharing their time and perspectives with me. Specifically, Tudas Food, Sunny Singh, Wendy Alisheva Summerson, and Sarah Ijoma Ulu, Shamir Iskander, Tori Johnston, Kevin Sir, Sabrina Alda, Brian Appleby, Blake Mann, Salma Al Aswad, and the many folks at KEXP who have supported the project. On that, I want to note that the views expressed in this series do not necessarily reflect the views of KEXP as an organization. I hope you'll join me for the next episode of Palestine Amplified. Thank you.